Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Pulitzer Prize winning historian, journalist, and the expert on the former Soviet Union and the politics of Central Europe, Ann Applebaum. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Blitacon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist, Smith AI, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, you know, no one has written more insightfully or eloquently about the perils facing democracy or the threat of authoritarianism than Ann Applebaum. Remember last year, she'd write an article and our friend Walter Dillinger would exclaim, that's the most important piece of the year. She'd write another and he'd say, that's the most important. He was right uh, on all occasions. And we can't thank you enough for being with us. I know you've just gotten back from Europe. What you expected, feared, Putin invaded. Uh, you were at the Munich Security Conference and you wrote for all the talk about Western unity, which does look impressive, there was a note of, di- of dissonance from the, from the Ukrainians. What's your assessment of the initial response from the West and where it's headed? So I think the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit for, um, for anticipating what was happening, for picking up intelligence early, for warning allies, for warning the Ukrainians that they expected a, a, a military operation, um, for raising the, uh, the, the amount of attention paid to this. They've even used their intelligence um, you know, to expose these kind of Russian fakes, you know, these false flag operations and provocations, some of which they've tried to carry out anyway in the last few days with no real success. Um, uh, They have got allies on board. They have already the Germans agreeing to shut down this major pipeline, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar um, infrastructure project between Germany and Russia. Uh, They've they've shuttered it for the moment. So they've got people to make real commitments. Um, What hasn't happened is we have not deterred Russia, I'm afraid. And we haven't really yet got a concrete plan to help the Ukrainians in case of attack. And so I was at the Munich Security Conference last weekend, and there was this feeling, as, I, as, I, as you quoted me saying, of kind of dissonance. You know, on the one hand, allies all together congratulating themselves, you know, here we are, we agree, we all understand what's happening, you know, we're not, you know, we're not misled. And at the same time, the Ukrainians saying, no one's going to help us and we know it. And it was a very awkward and in some ways difficult weekend for that reason. Well, we should give, why, why shouldn't the West give them any weapons they need? I mean, not nuclear weapons, obviously, but uh, any weapons, offensive we, as well we, as defensive. We have given them some weapons. Um, they have, you know, these kind of defensive weapons, anti-tank weapons. They've, right. They have the stingers and, and the equivalent um, to shoot, shoot down missiles and, and helicopters. Um, and, you know, we don't, you know, I don't, it's very hard for me to tell you what's going to happen over the next few days. In fact, I can't tell you. Um, but there are some people who think that's going to make a big difference. I mean, if they can inflict a lot of damage on Russians who come into the country, um, they can have a morale victory early on. I mean, you can imagine what it would look like to have lots of Russian tanks burning on TV, you know, on CNN. Um there has been some reluctance to give them weapons from, particularly from Europeans, on the grounds that that would provoke Putin. You know that if we arm them, then that looks like it's belligerent. That was really the German, the essence of the German argument against doing so. Yeah, it looks um, like the bear is provoked. 
I mean, that, 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 left, the, that, that, that left the station with, with the invasion. Yeah, um, I mean, that's now left the station, and I would expect more help to be coming. I mean, you know, we, we sell weapons to all kinds of people. I mean, the Germans sell weapons to Egypt, you know, which is not using them for peaceful and, you know, democratic purposes. Um, and all of us sell weapons to all kinds of places, and so there's no reason we shouldn't be selling them and bringing them to Ukraine. And I think that is happening, and it's happened over the past few days, and for, for all I know, it will increase. And as I say, the question is, is it enough? And I just, I just don't know. Um, it and, depends what the Russians do. And your Atlantic um, colleague, Tom Nichols, wrote about Putin launching a forever war. I guess what worries me here is that Putin calculates time is on his side. We'll get weary, face domestic political pressures, which he doesn't have to much worry about, uh, and that if it, if it is a protracted uh, war, that, uh, that that advantages him. Yes, although Tom Nichols is also right that Putin has now set himself up as a permanent threat to the West and to Europe and to, you know, even Western Europe in a way that he wasn't before. So he was, has not been perceived for 30 years. Russia hasn't really been seen as a, you know, physical military threat to Germany. Right. And frankly, not even really as a physical military threat to Poland or to, or to Lithuania. Um, that will now change. Um, and there will now be a shift in security thinking, you know, about about this and other and other parts of the world. And um, Putin will, you know, is now in a permanent conflict with the West of a kind that I don't think we're going to forget about immediately. Um, once there are, you know, Russian short range, well, there are already Russian short range missiles in striking distance of Berlin, um, maybe and certainly already, you know, Poland. Um, or Romania, that begins to change, I think, the way that people think about Russia. And I think that will have a permanent, you know, for the rest of our lives, actually. I think that we are, um, we will have a different set of, we will have a different relation with Russia, of course, assuming that Putin stays in power, which he might not. Well, I saw, speaking of that, I, I saw the tape of, of Putin uh, and I read uh, some of his comments. He didn't come across in uh, uh, these past few days as a cool customer. He was angry, almost out of control. Now, we know now he, he's evil, but do your sources think he may be a bit unstable also, which makes him even more dangerous? So one of the, you know, think, you know one of the assumptions that I've always made about Putin, and this comes from people who've met him and who know him and so on, is that he was not crazy. Um, he did not take outsized risks. When he came up against tough obstacles, he gave up. Um, so, for example, in 2014, the first time he invaded Ukraine, he actually wanted to go farther then. And he tried to stage these little mini coup d'etat in some eastern Ukrainian cities in Odessa and Kharkiv, um, and they failed. And when they failed, he didn't push it. He withdrew. Um, he kept his troops in the Far East, which he could, in, and that worked because he could, you know, he could um, he could continue supplying weapons to this sort of fake separatists that he created. But it didn't work in other places. And so he always had this sort of rational calculation. Here's what I can achieve. He's had the sense of himself being you know, less powerful than, than NATO and the U.S. and therefore needing to take into account of that. That appears to be gone. Um, he, what he's doing now, or at least what he has, what we know his plans say, whether he will carry them out, I don't know, is much, much more risky and seems much less rational. I mean, funny enough, the thing that worried me the most was the utterly bizarre and strange version of Ukrainian history that he propounded in his strange speech. I mean, it was 
not even one that I'd heard before. And I've heard a lot of, you know, fake histories of Ukraine and, and you know, myths about Ukraine and so on. I'd never heard anyone say, as he did, that Ukraine didn't exist before 1924 and it was invented by Lenin. This is a really um, so off the wall that I, mean, I, I don't even know what, what history book he got it from or whether he just made it up. But that's sort of an indication of his, his and also the language that he was using was kind of, I mean, I don't want to throw around the word genocide, but it was, you know, Crane doesn't deserve to exist. These people must be eliminated. Um, the only country in the post-Soviet world that has any real right to exist is Russia. All the others are fake or, un, you know, not real states. And, Ukraine, you know, he kind of dismissed Ukraine like it can be wiped off the map and it doesn't matter. Um, and this kind of tossing away of centuries of, you know, accumulated history and a separate language and a, you know, a national identity that has deep roots is disturbing. I mean, in the, given what we know about what happened in the 20th century. Yeah. James Carville. Uh, uh, thank you, Anne. Uh, I want to expand on something Al talked about. Uh, I was, very often, I show my students a film called The Triumph of the Will. Mm. Her name was Lenny Rosenfeld. I might be mispronouncing it. And I think Putin has calculated that, rightly or wrongly, that the West is decadent and he has an iron will and he will just gut it out and we will fold. Uh, yes. And I, I, maybe it's that simple. I think he has calculated that. Um, it's a risky calculation um, because right. he doesn't know the West as well as he thinks he knows it. Um, but. Right. But but yes, I th I think his calculation is that we'll give up. We're weak. I think he drew a lot of conclusions from Afghanistan um, and our chaotic withdrawal there. And he thinks that the same thing will happen. He thinks you know this is a you know these are countries that don't want to fight anymore. Um, and he and he thinks we're going to give up. And so yes, that is part of his calculation. So one of the things that I hear from people that I, I respect, Tom Friedman, John B. Judas is, well, you got to admit, Putin has a point. We shouldn't have expanded NATO. Well, this is the same crap as, well, we disrespected the Japanese at Versailles. We gave them the kids' table. And, yeah, we, we, we limited Jap or, or did away with Japanese immigration. Well, that doesn't justify bombing Pearl Harbor. And, and what drives me crazy is a lot of, there's a whole move in high-end opinion to say, well, maybe we provoked Putin into this. And I frankly think it's traitorous, but <laughs> you can expound on it. I can certainly expound on it. I feel like I've had this, you know, been saying this over and over and over again for three weeks. Um, no, this is not about NATO. Putin is not afraid of NATO. If he were afraid of NATO, then why did he take all of his troops away from the NATO borders and send them down to Ukraine? I mean, we could invade, you know, northern Russia right now and there would be no one to defend it because there's no, um, there, are no there are no Russian troops there. Um, the German chancellor went to Moscow a few days ago and essentially said in public at a press conference, he said, as long as I'm chancellor, Ukraine will not be in NATO. So, I mean, he made the, you know, we, I'm, we're not including it. And none of that had any effect at all. Um, Putin's objection to sovereign Ukraine is not about NATO. It's about um, the existence of a democratic, independent Ukraine that is not part of a Russian or post-Soviet empire. 
Um, he sees the democracy in Ukraine and particularly the democratic revolution of 2014 as the model for the thing he is personally most afraid of, which is some kind of street revolution that would knock him out of power. He hates the rhetoric of democracy. He hates the language of democracy. He hates the appearance of democracy. This is why he sought to manipulate our elections. It's why he intervenes in other elections. It's why he does his best to undo democratic institutions, whether it's the European Union or NATO. This has been his, the center of his foreign policy for a decade, um, and it has nothing to do with whether or not we expanded NATO in the 1990s. That's all, that's just gut for people like Tom Friedman and John Judas to sort of, you know, get distracted right. by. All right. And I don't think the Czech Republic is going to invade Russia anytime soon. But I want to go back to something because you are, as I appreciate your history, you're a pretty fervent anti-communist conservative in the late 90s. Yep. That, that, that's a, and then, of course, like every reasonable person in the world, you became appalled by what's happening. And I can't explain to people what it is in high-end liberal culture that makes us say that, well, he's got a point. It's not like 100%. Like, shut up, all right? <laughs> you, you, don't, you, you don't redraw maps because you, you didn't like something that happened in 1994 or, or 1989. It, what, what, and... and do you see this? Can you give me any explanation who has been part of this culture a long time? Look, look, it's, there were people who had happened. Mr. Hitler had a point. You know, look at him. You know, right. There he is. Sure, he did. Kane said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, I had a point. There, you know, look, those people in Czechoslovakia, some of them speak German. He has a point. Maybe they should be part of greater Germany. You know, he should be allowed to do this, you know, because, because the, you know, but I mean, honestly, it's a... You know, our instinct is always to avoid conflict, to avoid war. This is, you know, this is the, you know, that we are we are democracies. We um, we have trouble mobilizing. We don't. We like to say, you know, that my, my 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 favorite phrase of Western foreign policy, you know, mavens is, oh, you know, oh, this this is a subject that can only be solved by diplomacy. There's no military solution to this conflict. Actually. Some people do think there are military solutions to conflicts, and that's you know that's the that's the solution they're going to achieve. And unless we're prepared sometimes to acknowledge that there is no diplomatic solution to the conflict, um, we will we will we will lose these conflicts. Um, and that's happened over and over again. But yes, I mean it's a, the instinct is always to explain, excuse, you know, often to blame ourselves, you know as a way of avoiding reality, as a way of not acknowledging that we are now facing in Russia um, a challenge of the kind that we, we faced in the 20th century of a dictator who is going to seek to redraw borders, who's going to use violence and brutality and bloodshed to reshape the map of Europe and to reshape world security. And if we're not willing to acknowledge that that is, is the case, uh, then he will win. So before I turn it over to Al, at one point I asked you to expand on, I, I don't know why we don't go to every freaking Republican and say, do you agree with Trump and Mike Pompeo mm. that tr Putin is a shrewd guy and that Biden is a weak guy? It's like saying Tojo was a strong guy or Hitler was a strong guy or Mussolini was a strong guy, right? This is insanity, and I, I, my own view, and you 
correct me, you're on here, correct me if I'm wrong, but we ought to be putting, we ought to be having hearings and dragging their asses out there and say, where are you on this? Tucker Carlson. The, the Democratic Socialists of America have put out a statement under no condition can we have Russian sanctions. It, it just drives me nuts, and I've said enough. I'll let you respond. No, so so you're you're. This is an even more so the phenomenon of some liberals not wanting to acknowledge that you know there are evil and bad people in the world who are always going to be evil and bad is one thing. The phenomenon of some Republicans and, you know, and led by Trump, but also with, um, and led by some of the Trump propagandists, um, you know, like, like Carlson and others, of actually endorsing violence and endorsing brutality um, is so deeply disturbing. I mean, the only echoes I can think of in past American history, I mean, you have to go to the Civil War um, to find anything similar. Maybe some of the craziest 60s radicals, you know, who believed in violent overturn of the system, you know, but those were tiny numbers of people. We now have mainstream part of the Republican Party, the former president, the former foreign secretary, the, for, the former secretary of state, um, leading television, you know, um, talk show hosts who are endorsing violence, endorsing war, who are endorsing an assault on democracy. And the only explanation that I can think of is that it's because they want to end democracy in America too. Their admiration for autocracy, their admiration for that kind of evil, um, their, that kind of, you know, the falsification of history, the lies, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a new element in American politics, not something that we've had in, in this mainstream form um, that I can remember in recent history. No, I, I think you're you right, and I think it, that that Trump is the Trump is the cheerleader on this. What what he said yesterday was despicable. That uh, that uh, um, uh, Putin is a genius. He talked about the peacekeepers. He said this never would have happened uh, under my uh, my administration. I don't believe anything that he says or take anything seriously that he says. But some people do ask the question: Why didn't Putin do this when he had a had a friendly American because, president? Because because Trump was useful to him. You know, look, he thought Trump was going to undermine Ukraine. You know, he, you know, fi you know, via his weird influencers and, you know, Rudy Giuliani and his creepy Russian clients, you know, they persuaded Trump to try and blackmail the Ukrainian president to deprive him of, of military aid in exchange for some fake dirt on Joe Biden. Um, so, you know, they had a guy in the White House they thought they were going to manipulate into, into doing the job for them. I mean, you know, it was, it was Trump, you know, Trump didn't, you know, fortunately there were enough people to hold Trump back, a few people and the, some who've gone unnamed actually, and some others who we, who we know well, you know, prevented Trump from, from, from doing that. Um, but that was Putin's game. Putin was use the Americans to undermine Ukraine. When that failed, when, you know, when Ukraine elected for the second time a Democratic president who was not pro-Russian, um, when we got a Democrat back in the White House who was not going to play along with Putin's stupid games, you know, this is when he decided to do it. And talk for a minute about the escalatory dangers here, not just in Ukraine, uh, but the Baltics, even the Balkans. So what... The, the scenarios that I worry about involve um, Putin going into Ukraine and then there being some form of Ukrainian resistance that is supplied or backed up um, by neighboring states. Um, I worry about, you know, Ukrainian refugees or the Ukrainian army fleeing across a border and Russian troops following them. 
Um, because once they're in Ukraine or they're in Western Ukraine, then they're, you know, they're on the border of Poland, they're on the border of Romania, they're on the border, they're not far from the Baltic states. And frankly, they're not that far from Germany, you know. Um, you know, people forget Germany itself invaded Ukraine, um, you know, in the in the 20th century and has, is, it's much, it's all much closer geographically than you think. You know, the flight from, from Munich to Kiev is two hours. You know, these are not places that are far away from each other. Um, and so my fear is that the war spills over the borders and that there's some rising conflict um, because of that. And, and that's we're far away from that right now, and I don't want to be too doom-mongering because a lot of things could happen before we get to that. But the, the scenarios for escalation, both military escalation and also economic escalation, um, Putin may well cut off gas to Europe. The Europeans, by the way, say they're prepared for that. I mean, we'll see. Um, he may stop pumping oil. It could raise oil prices around the world. There are all kinds of economic tricks that he may try as well. So I think we should really be prepared for anything right now. You, you mentioned Poland, where you where you live. That's been very uh, Polish has been very 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 close to Ukraine, uh, but also another NATO member, Hungary, where Viktor Orban has been very Kremlin friendly. Uh, what what's what's the he went along with the sanctions. But what's, what's the reaction among the Orbans of the world now? So the Orbans of the world, like the Trumps of the world, are cheering this on. I mean, my, my secret fear about Orban, actually it's not that secret, um, is that he will, in, that he's anticipating some kind of partition of Ukraine. And he's hoping that there is a, there is a small, very small, but, um, you know, old Hungarian-speaking part of Ukraine. There's a little air, a little section of Ukraine that's where there are a lot of Hungarian speakers. And because Orban has been talking for years about, you know, the injustices done to Hungary that was divided up after World War I, my fear is that he's going to try and take that territory back. And that once the, um, you know, that he's looking for that, some kind of deal from the Russians. But as I said, anybody who approves of brutality, anybody who dislikes the rule of law, anybody who doesn't want to be held to um, to democratic or legal standards is going to like this event. And that includes the Chinese. Well, the Chinese are more complicated, but it certainly includes all of the, you know, petty dictatorships or would-be dictatorships like uh, like Hungary, um, who, who aspire to that kind, of, um, that kind of behavior. And this is the greatest test NATO has faced probably in 70 years. It's not going to be the same one way or another. They're going to have to you know, spend more resources, military. Um, uh, are they prepared for that? Is NATO rather prepared for that? So I don't know that they're prepared yet, but I think they will be. It very much depends on what happens. Um, I do think a lot of minds will, if there is the kind of major invasion that um, the White House is afraid of and now the Ukrainians are afraid of, um, then I think people will look differently at that part of the world and they will feel differently about spending money on military resources. Um, look, we've thought since the end of the Cold War that we had a break, that we didn't have an enemy to the east, at least not a not a really dangerous one, that we could turn our eye elsewhere, that we could do other things. Um, I too had that feeling and it was, you know, one of the, you know, best years of my life was 1989 and another great year was 1991, which is when the Soviet Union broke apart, you know, not least because of what, what President Clinton called, you know, the, you know, the, this, you know, the benefit that we were going to get from, um, from dismantling, you know, bringing U.S. troops home and, you know, spending that money on something else. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to go the other way. 
people will, once people see an invasion, if it happens, I think they will begin to be prepared for it. So, so Anne, but, but I'm going to give a, a, a counterfactual here. I don't know if I'm right. All right, Russia is a piece of shit country. Its GDP is a trillion and a half dollars. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the I, market yeah. Cap, I have a lot of the market you know, cap of Amazon. Friends, so be careful, but yes. All right, the, the market cap of Amazon is over a trillion dollars. Right, we have spent, I don't know how much money on defense in this century, but it's a lot. We have great universities. We have all kinds of things. And a lot of people in the United States just assume that Russia is going to get the best of this deal. I am not, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that our military is that weak. I'm not convinced that they're that clever. I'm, I mean, I know they have, you know, nukes and intercontinental ballistic missiles. I, I think, is anybody, do you know anybody that wears a Russian watch, drives a Russian car, has a Russian refrigerator, relies on a Russian air conditioner? I, I mean, I, I go back, you know, we might be at war with when John McCain, they'd be right, a mafia-run gas station masquerading as a country. And why are we so in awe of Putin and Russia? I mean, they could kill us all, but that's always a possibility. But other than that, they can't beat us. No, I mean, I agree with you. And But as you know better than me, this is not about our strengths and our abilities. This is about politics. Um, you know, can you rally Americans? Can you, you know, can you get approval for military intervention? You know, Can you, you know, what can you bring the public along to do? I mean, um, Americans have got used to the idea that, um, you know, wars are something that happen far away and they don't really affect us and we don't really see them and we don't have to support them. And there's, as you know, the um, you know, the, 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 the exhaustion with Afghanistan is part of what led Biden to make the decisions he did last summer. So it's not that we can't do it. It's that we haven't decided to do it yet. Um, we haven't decided to really fight back. And um, we certainly not confronted the Russians militarily, I mean, ever. I mean, not since, not since the end of the Cold War. Um, if we did decide to do it, um, of course, it would be game changing. And yes, of course, I believe we could win. Well, if you know, it's better sometimes to ask for forgiveness than permission, but it doesn't always work. And I don't think we ought to go to war on that doctrine. But I, I just, from, from, I think we overestimate them and underestimate us. We underestimate us. We may also be underestimating the Ukrainians. Um, right. You know, the, the Ukraine, and, and they get too little voice in these arguments. You know, the Ukrainians are. This is a nation that created itself from nothing 30 years ago. Um, it's a nation that has always been good at spontaneous, civic, you know, self-organized and grassroots movements. It's better at that than it is at governing itself. Um, uh, you know, historically that's been true. That goes back 200 years. Um, it, it is a nation that has fought partisan warfare before. Um, and it's a nation that has got angrier and angrier over the last few years under the effect of Russian threat. I mean, look, Ukrainians were not historically anti-Russian. They were not 
10 years ago, if you went to Ukraine, you did not find people who were angry at Russia. I mean, not very many. Um, right. You know, the, but the, the impact, I mean, so far of Putin's policy towards Ukraine, you know, this, this annexation of Crimea and the war in the East has made Ukrainians angrier. It's made them more Ukrainian and it's made them more anti-Russian. Um, and I do think that um, a large percentage of them are willing to fight. One poll showed that, that I, I don't remember now the exact number, but it's over 50% of Ukrainians say they will personally take arms and fight if necessary. I mean, we'll see what happens, but that's a lot of people. So, so uh, for, before, I'll turn it back to Al. So I, I'll tell you, I've done pretty extensive work in the Ukraine in, in like 2000. It was in... Uh, later part of President Bush's administration. So take us inside a household, maybe not in Kiev, but somewhere in Western Ukraine, and, and maybe the, the, the head of the household is a nurse, and the, the, the other the spouse is a school teacher, and they got two kids. What are they saying to themselves? What's the conversation going on when they have a bowl of whatever they eat. <laughs> What's the sort of going on in their, in, 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 in their heads? Uh, Ukrainian food is very good, actually. Just, just a little parenthetical there. Um, what they're going on in their head right now, so just so that you know, the, the Ukrainian-ness, the national identity, has been linked for a long time to ideas of rebellion, opposition, um, this is a nation that was essentially a colony, first of a long time ago of Poland, then later of Russia. Um, and the national identity is very wrapped up in this sense of opposition to whoever in power, anti-establishment feelings. Um, the, the current president of Ukraine is a guy who was um, an, an actor. He's from a provincial part of the country. He then played... Um, he played as on television. He played. A, he did a television series where he played a school teacher, who ranted against corruption. The video of him doing that was captured by a student. It went viral, and then he accidentally was elected president of Ukraine. So he kind of repeated that in real life. But he represented in the program these kind of anti-establishment, anti-elite values, and um, and that's a you know you will you would hear in an ordinary Ukrainian household you know grumbling about people in power, but now you would also hear grumbling about the Russians who are, uh, you know, who are imposing their unfair system on us. There's a, there's a great desire, there's a national desire for justice and for fairness and for a better state. Um, there are a lot of people who've spent a lot of time in the last couple of decades working towards, you know, whether different kinds of reforms, institutional reforms, economic reforms. Um, there are you know, there are a lot of people who want their country to change and make it better. It's really one of the most aspirational countries that I know of. I mean, people are idealistic. They work hard. I mean, not everybody is, you know, it's a normal country like everybody else. There are good people and bad people and some brave people and some cowardly people. But there is a significant group of um, influential Ukrainians who, you know, have been trying to improve their country and have been trying to integrate it with the West, you know, for a couple of decades now. Um, and ordinary people reflect that same desire. I mean, you would also discover in your average Ukrainian household that it's not as radically different from an American household as you think. You know, they've probably seen a lot of the same movies. You know, they listen to the same rap music. They have Ukrainian rappers too, actually. Um, you know, they have... 
you know, they're, they, they're, they're, what they see and what they listen to is closely related to what we see and listen to. They share in the same kind of culture. Um, they, you know, they're, you know, they, they have a, you know, Christian, Jewish, um, Western heritage in that sense as well. Um, so, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't walk into a Ukrainian household and feel that it was really all that different from yours. Maybe uh, you know, Apple Bottom, we can't change. James, we have to let Ann go. We, okay. We've kept her Sorry. for a long time. You have been wonderful. Can I make one more point? The, the, these are going to be, no, we can do that later. There have been momentous okay. times ahead. And if anybody out there wants to know what's going on, read Ann Applebaum in The Atlantic. You are the best, Ann. And we really, really, we thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. And um, enjoy the rest of your chat. Right. Terrific. Okay. Will do. Hey, James, no more excuses. It's 2022, and that means it's the perfect time to up your game across the board to make it your best year yet. That's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks. Now, you can digest them in just 15 minutes. It's time for you to try it. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or finish titles like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I, I've never read that one. Or How to Be a Leader by Plutarch. Or um, an, an American Compromise by Greg Unger. And with Ukraine threatened by imminent invasion, we definitely like American Compromise. Donald Trump, the KGB, Related Tales of Greed and Treachery, in it, Unger dives into why and how Putin was able to corrupt Trump, what it means for Europe, and what we need to do to reclaim our country from subversive influence. Nothing's more important right now. Do you agree, James Carville? I, I agree, and I'm going to take a little bit of issue with you. I, okay. I think, like, Dale Carnegie and these kind of salespeople from the kind of 50s and 60s, I think in some ways they were brilliant. And I think, like, the lessons, you know, one of the things that, like, gets to me is people say, I don't give a shit what other people think about me. You're lying. You care. You want, you want to be liked. And if, when you have Blinkist, you can read about Dale Carnegie. You can read about other people. You can, you, you, and you can, you can read about a whole variety of things. So, you know, when you go to a dinner party or, or, or you're sitting down with friends, and you make interesting points, people like that, and you like that people like that. I, I am just not a believer when, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I don't care what people think about me, I got more opinions. You're full of shit. And, and if you want to be interesting conversational purpose person, and, and I... I you know, like Zig Ziglar, I think it was kind of right. He used to do he he would do these kind of seminars and stuff. But I like the Dale Carnegie's of the world. I like the salespeople of the world. And I think there's some. I'm not trying to disagree just to be disagreeable. But yeah, there's all kind of things you can get on on, on Blinkless. I, oh, I I love Blinkist. I may have to go back and read Dale Carnegie. Right. I, I think I yeah. think you're gonna find there's more wisdom yeah. in there. I got a, got a couple more, couple more ahead of it, but uh, but right. yeah, you know, it's not war and peace, yeah. but <laughs> that's okay. right.
They have blinked thousands of titles, James, in 27 categories. And it's all in one app right in your pocket. So you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room or start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash War Room to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist.com slash War Room, or look for the link in our show notes. So I, I have one question. It is Ulysses, I'm sure it is, on there, because people have said that's the greatest novel in, in history. I've never got past the first paragraph. Well, I, I, I may, you know, and when, when I've looked at it, I think it's been nonfiction, James. I think, but I, that's one life in a day of you guys, Mr. So, Bloom or well, something in Dublin. But I, I want to go to Blinkist and find out check. what the big deal. They will we tell will me find, what the big deal we is. We will find that. We'll check. And we'll get Dale Carnegie and James Joyce. Okay. All right. Let's, let's move along. James, uh, the midterm primaries kick off next week with Texas. And overall, we know if the general election were held today, it'd be a banner Republican night. But conditions can change, and primaries can make a difference on both sides. Just let me offer a few examples, and then you hold forth. If Republicans in deeply red Missouri, for instance, were to nominate Eric Greitens, uh, that race could be in play. Once a decorated combat veteran, he had to resign as governor facing impeachment. He, he faced financial fraud, but most explosive was his hairdresser, who said that Greitens physically and sexually assaulted her, took pictures of her naked, which he said he'd use as blackmail if she said anything. I mean, I don't think that's going to be the candidate they want, but he's ahead in the polls right now. And a bloodbath is brewing in several other GOP primaries, Ohio, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. That could weaken the, the Republican nominee, even in a fairly good year for them, or a good year for them. And on the other side, if Pennsylvania Democrats nominate Lieutenant Governor John Betterman, a Bernie bro and the front runner, he's going to have a tough time in the fall. So what happens in these primaries in the next uh, three months uh, could have an impact on uh, where Congress goes after next fall. So... All, all of this is, is a good point, and and I, I'm really kind of it, it, every time I say I'm done with pointing out differences among Democrats, they do something stupid that draws me back into the game. So the president's giving the State of the Union address, but boy, there's a lot of stupid things they're doing. They're doing social distancing, no gas, everyone has to wear a mask. This is dumbass, and, and I, I'm the most COVID, as you know, you I'm, are. I'm the most COVID paranoid person in the world. I, I've, I've had, don't tell anybody, I've had four shots. All right? I won't tell This is that. just really goddamn, you, you, you watch a Duke basketball game, all right? They're all in there. I have no idea if it's, if it's good public health or not, but we're all each apiece. And then I read that the, the squad is doing a counter to President Biden's State of the Union. Give me a goddamn break. The country is at war, uh, literally at war, right? Literally at war. And we can't, we have a 50 Democratic senators, a four-person majority in the House, and you're going to give 
the alternative? This is so, I, I can't tell, uh, to the extent that people that listen to the show have any respect for what I say, I, I, I literally, and I, I want to get off of this attacking people that have similar views to me, but they just can't help themselves from being goddamn stupid. They can't help themselves. Boy, you nailed that. You nailed that. Um, James, uh, if you want to talk about an alternative agenda, uh, we don't need it from the squad. Democrats may have gotten a break this week. Rick Scott, who chairs the Florida Senate, who chairs the GOP campaign committee, uh, may have given Democrats a break with his 31-page policy agenda. Now, let me tell you what it costs for. You'll like some of this. He not only wants to fully fund that expensive and inefficient wall along the Mexican border, but he's going to name it after Donald Trump. So high on the agenda, the Trump wall, the Donald J. Trump wall. He wants to mandate the kids stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance at public schools. He wants to play the big race card, eliminate racial and ethnic questions from all government forms. So therefore, the Census Bureau won't be able to know anything about that. All federal programs programs expire after five years, and he wants to limit all federal workers, including members of Congress, to 12 years. Now, someone ought to tell Senator Scott that his Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, has already exceeded that by a quarter century. You know, he says, apparently, he got advice on this from Newt Gingrich. It sounds like it, James. You know, if I were a Democrat, I'd like to run on some of that stuff or against some of that stuff. So I want to make two points. First of all, both of us don't didn't like Walter Dellinger. We worship Walter Dellinger. And all the things that I didn't know about Walter, who was actually, as I am, a Southern Catholic, although he grew up in a predominantly Protestant part of the South, one of the few predominantly Catholic parts of the South. And he was forced to stand up for prayer in school. And he actually wrote a brief that persuaded Justice Kennedy mm -hmm. in an opinion. I mean, this is like, Walter Dellinger is such a staggeringly great man. So I'm going to give you the most bullshit thing that Republicans say. So, well, poor people don't pay income tax. We, we ought to make poor people pay income tax. Is none other than Warren Buffett pointed out, if, if you make $25,000 a year, I can't tell you how many taxes that you are paying. Like you're paying... So you don't pay private tax, you rent. Well, it gets passed off to you. You buy gas, you buy beer, you buy groceries, you buy clothes. You buy you, 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 the, 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 tax, the effective tax rate for a family of, of three that makes $25,000 a year on the next dollar is infinitesimally higher yep. than the next dollar that somebody makes $25 million a year. And if the Democrats... Don't, like, point out that they, and, and, and by the way, he's the head of the, the, the Republican Senatorial Committee. He is. That they want to raise, they don't think you pay enough taxes. And it's, it is the greatest, well, they're, they're any number, but the greatest bullshit argument is they don't pay an income tax. Is if I, so if, if I have, if I make a million dollars a year giving speeches, but the next dollar I make is, is taxed at, I don't know, 35%? 37. Oh, or, or whatever it is, all right? The next, every dollar that somebody else makes, if we just got to send out flyers saying, 
to the Democrat, you want to excite the Democratic base? Every, they, they don't think you pay enough. They think you're too rich. And it's, it's the most bullshit argument there is in American politics. And on the surface, it makes, it sounds good. All right? And if, if, you know what? What we need to do is make poor people or lower-income people pay taxes, and that way they'll care more about democracy. I got news for you. They pay taxes, a lot of fucking taxes. Well, James, that example you gave, that cleaning lady making 25 grand a year, she pays $2,000 in, in, in Social Security payroll taxes. taxes. Payroll taxes. That, that's, that's, that's almost 10% of what she has. I don't, right. I, I'll bet you there are a bunch of, of, of zillionaires who aren't paying 10% of their income. Warren Buffett says it. I mean, people, they, they, every economist says that. And we just can't let that shit go. We have to, like, go. And, you know, you talk about you don't, we don't get enough, you know, marginal people involved in elections and we got to be for some goofy shit that these left-wingers are. They want to raise your taxes. So what, what, what does Rick Scott want? 10% tax on $25,000 a year? Well, that's two, That's $2,500. You think somebody that's making $25,000 a year has $2,500 when after they're paying payroll taxes, sales taxes, every other kind of use tax that you have, paying increased rent because of property taxes? What bullshit? What bullshit? Take a look at Rick Scott's background, too, and Medicare fraud and... Uh, uh, you'd, you'd see from whence he came. James, before we leave this, there's one race that's coming up next Tuesday that it's just too delicious not to talk about. And that's the contest for Texas Attorney General. Now, on the Republican side, the incumbent Ken Paxton has been indicted for some time on state charges. He was reelected when he was under indictment, still hadn't gone to trial yet. And now there's a separate federal investigation which his former top aides are testifying against him. He's now the favorite at least to finish first in the first round. He's running against George P. Bush, a member of the Bush family, who is running against another woman who he says the reason to vote against her is that she is not for the Donald Trump wall. So a Bush has turned into more of a Trumper than a Bush. And then, James, to cap it off, who do we have? One of our favorite, favorite members of Congress, Louis Gohmart who I think may be IQ-wise, well, we know where he is. Uh, and Louie is just saying that he is the only one. He, he's being, they're campaigning against him because he missed, missed uh, uh, I don't know, uh, 8 10% of the votes and how outrageous that was. We're better off when Louie misses all the votes in Congress. So, James, who are you cheering for in that race? Well, I, I don't really, like, cheer for anybody. It's also, it's also profoundly depressing. And I, I, I just think we got to get away from Trump, I think I think he's going to be indicted. I really believe this. I've thought it for a long time. You know, Walter thought the same thing. This is becoming a, 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 an increasingly mainstream thing. But I got news for you: Louis ain't ain't as dumb as Clay Higgins. There, there's a there's a there's a lot more out there. That than, that but but we got I, I, my own view is. We got to get away from their obvious headline stupidity and, and tell people the real harm that they're trying to do. And you were right to bring out the Rick Scott thing. And Rick Scott, I, 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 I can't call him a criminal because he's never been charged, all right? But 
there's a lot of shady shit around Rick Scott and Medicare. And I, 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 I just think that, that all of this Trump, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Margie Taylor Greene, I, I, I think it's attractive clickbait. And, you know, by now, if you hadn't formed an opinion on this, I think you're clueless. But, but I, I think that the, the Rick Scott thing, and, you know, some goofy left-wing San Francisco school board that really doesn't have any power says something stupid. We pay an enormous price. The head of the Republican Senatorial Committee says we got to tax people that make $25,000 a year, another $2,500. We got to make them fucking pay for that. We got to make them pay for that. And we cannot be distracted by the other shit. That's my view. Amen. All right, we'll watch Texas next week. Hey, now more than ever, businesses are spread thin, but clients demand an instant response. So if you're losing leads from missed calls or web visitors that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service, Smith AI. It's not your average receptionist service. Smith AI provides businesses with award-winning virtual receptionists who handle your calls, chats, and texts to unlock new businesses at a fraction of the cost of hiring in-house staff. And since 2015, they've combined the best receptionists across America with AI technology for a superior business communications and customer engagement. The friendly and professional agents screen leads using your custom criteria, schedule appointments in your calendar, and call back leads who complete your form. Do it all by phone, seven days a week, and on your website through their 24-7 live chat service. They even answer texts and Facebook messages. How much time would that save you, Mr. Carville? Uh, save me a ton. But, you know, Al, I'm like you. As we get older, we got more time, and I can do more of this, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> well, Smith AI integrates with your preferred software, Salesforce, HubSpot, Calendly, Zapier, and thousands more, keeping your off calls but always in the loop. Plus, they have English and Spanish-speaking receptionists and will block spam for free, so no more annoying calls. Smith AI handles all calls, after-hour calls, or just your overflow, helping thousands of small businesses across a wide range of industries, including law firms, home service professionals, marketing agencies, and other service-based business. And they're ready to help your business also. Now, imagine... Work uninterrupted, James, running your business with less stress and getting more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI pays for itself and then some with all the new clients. Their receptionists help you win. You'll never miss another lead. James, you were about to say yeah, something. I, I, if I had this, a mode, if I had something like this in the 80s when I ran a one-person political consulting shop, I would have made a lot more money. Because I, 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 in any in any kind of young hustler out there of anything, this gives you a tool. You better not let your competitors get a hold to it because they'll kick the crap out of you. So I, I, I would urge anybody in sales, political consulting, insurance, I, I don't know, whatever the hell you do, get this. It'll help you.
Yeah, and get in early if your competitor is going to get it, get ahead of them. You know, you're going to boost revenue, increase your focus at work, and keep your staffing costs down. It's as simple as forwarding your calls to Smith AI. Plans start at just 240 bucks a month. Try Smith AI today and see for yourself why business owners like Justy Nicole say Smith AI receptionists are her secret to business growth and client happiness. And our listeners will save 100 bucks when you sign up using our promo code WARROOM at smith.ai. Visit smith.ai to read five-star reviews and be sure to use our code WARROOM to save $100 at sign up. Don't let another day go by. Try Smith AI or look for the link in our show notes. All right, James, now our listener questions. Uh, the first one is from Patrick in Eugene, Oregon, the home of Nike. Uh, and Patrick asked a very good question. Will voting restrictions in conservative states, uh, like reducing mail-in voting and limiting voting sites, affect turnout in the elderly population uh, that Republicans rely on? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you answer this because you, you're very much more knowledgeable about this than I am and talk to more people. I just got to say, Eugene, Oregon, Oregon, like the bounce, the track stadium there is like if you had to take the five greatest stadiums in the United States, uh, it would be hard for that not to be in the top five. And it's a, they it's have a good contest, James. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe we'll do it one time. You yeah. know, the, the the five greatest sports venues in the United States. But boy, it would be hard to not have that as part of it. But I, I'm, I'm going to turn this over to you because okay. you really deal with this issue a lot. Well, on your point, I'd be parochial and I'd throw in Franklin Field and uh, University of Pennsylvania and the Cameron Indoor Stadium. But we'll come back to that. Um, J James, Patrick makes a point. It may affect some elderly, but they're mainly going to affect uh, low-income people, uh, uh, minorities, and people with disabilities. And those people, the survey show, voted decisively in the last election for Democratic candidates. And I assure you, these, conserv the, these people, they may be bad, but they aren't dumb. And they're not, enacting, they're not enacting these restrictions, so they'll primarily hurt their voters. So, so, so I, I want to like, give you a chance to expound this a little bit. And you, you've been very upfront about this. As you and Judy have a disabled child, right. it, you, you have been very kind of active. And if, if, of course you know these people as well as anybody else. Tell us a little bit about how this really kind of would affect disabled people. Well, it depends on the state, but Jeffrey needs help when he goes to vote. He votes every election. Uh, he let, lives, lives up in Wester, Westminster, Maryland, uh, and he really uh, he, he, he thinks the franchise is precious, as, as most Americans should. Uh, but he needs assistance. And in places where they're going to limit that assistance, which I think is the case in Texas, uh, it would make it very hard. And uh, I have to say this. I think that was the intent. I think it was, too. I, yeah. I think cruelty is what dominates all of this. But Yeah, it does. James, our next question is from Kingsley in Staten Island, New York. Uh, two old questions. Uh, Kingsley asks, do you believe JFK would have fared better if he'd lived compared to what we got from LBJ? We'll never know. Uh, George Bundy, in a later kind of uh, confession in a book, a uh, very good book written by a guy named Gary, Gary Goldstein, I believe. God, it was a good book. Uh, said he thought that uh, Kennedy would not have escalated the war in Vietnam, but nobody knows that for sure. And the other question is, does he believe that RFK would have been elected Bobby Kennedy in 68? 
I do. Um, again, we won't know, but Rich Daly, uh, the mayor of Chicago and the son of the powerful mayor of Chicago in, in the 60s and early 70s, told me that his dad told him on the night of the California primary when Kennedy won and before he was shot, uh, that he was going to endorse Kennedy uh, the next couple of days. And I think given the momentum of those primaries and the endorsement of Richard Daley, a kingmaker, uh, and not one of the, the anti-war liberals, to put it mildly, uh, and the fact that President Johnson had really, you know, had, his power was minimal now that he was a lame duck. I think Bobby Kennedy would have won the nomination, and I think he would have been a stronger and probably a successful candidate against Richard Nixon in the fall because I think he would have picked off some of those George Wallace votes in places like Gary, Indiana. But that's just speculation, James. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember it well. It, it was contemporaneous when I got out of the Marine Corps. I think it was like two days before. I got, I, I got out of the Marine Corps on June the 5th, 1968. I, I have to go back and look. but I think, I think it was June 6th, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, whatever. It was all washed up together. I, 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 I don't... I, 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 I don't challenge <clears throat> what you're saying. I, I, I don't know. I, I was a kind of, and still am, a big Hubert Humphrey admirer. I think that, you know, Johnson made, who was actually in many ways a, a really profoundly good president, who made one humongous error to his credit. He knew he made the error. And, uh, yeah, may be right, but I, in just in my heart, I, I am. I think Hubert Humphrey, of course, he got his master's at LSU, which would make me more. I think he was a tragic figure. I think he was a really good man. I don't know anybody that that thinks any differently. And of course, Kennedy. And by the way, our friend George Stevens points out, I cannot recommend. The documentary Crisis by Robert Drew enough. It just, I cannot, that's one of the five greatest films ever made. But I, I, I don't know, I don't dispute what you said, but I am, I am a still admire Hubert Humphrey. Well, mine is just, is just conjecture. And speaking of George Stevens, uh, that film is one of the greatest. And his book is going to come out in a couple months on, on the golden Hollywood and Washington years. He was in the Kennedy administration working with Edward R. Murrow. And, of course, uh, his father was, you know, maybe the most famous movie director of the 20th century. And George himself is an Academy Award winner. So I think that's a book that we're all going to want to read. And we're going to have to have George Stevens on the... You don't have to. We want to have George Stevens. Elegant man. Just oh. a, a humane, charming, kind, talented... Uh, 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 Accomplished, he, he really yeah. is. In every order you hit. And humble. George, Very humble. George, George, James. I'm going to get this straight. And I wasn't even a Mardi Gras. Uh, James, our next <laughs> question drunk. comes from Doug, uh, who was formerly of Kiev, Ukraine. And, he, and this touches on some of the things we discussed with Ann Applebaum. But he says, how can we beat back the absolutely vile, untrue poison from influential people like Tucker Carlson about Ukraine and Russia? It's hard to believe that such a large segment of the Republican Party is pro-Russia. You know, that is a good... Well, I, I have no proof of this, so I'll be very careful on rival laws. People somewhere are getting paid. All right, they pay off a lot of people. And I, I don't know why Canada, which is a first world country, I, I bet you when you get to the core, 
don't know this, you'll find the Russians are funding these Canadians. I bet you you would find an exhaustive investigation would find as a lot of, the Russians have figured out that there's all kinds, and by the way, the Democratic Socialists of America, I don't know this, I wish somebody would do an exhaustive investigation into their funding. Glenn Greenwald, why is he so pro-Russian? And what are useful idiots like Tom Friedman and John B. Judas doing, saying, well, maybe Putin has a point. I, I am like, I am disappointed in this country's reaction across the board. Everybody has a point about everything. You don't start redrawing frickin' borders because you have a point. And I, I just hope this country, and, and there's like benign stupidity and paid for evil, and they're both, and there's a lot of shit in between. You know, picking up on that subject matter, I, by the way, I concur with everything you just said. Um, Dot in Portland, Oregon, this is a big Oregon day, uh, asked, when all the military and political experts go on TV and discuss theorize about what Putin, Biden, Zelensky may or may not do and the outcomes, doesn't that kind of tip off the other side? No, it doesn't. Uh, and I'll tell you what uh, the Biden people did that was so brilliant, bold, innovative, shrewd, and they have done a great job, as Ann said, is that they went and they were, and they got out, classified uh, intelligence that showed that they knew what the Russians were doing. And that was going to get out anyway. And I think, it's, I think it did spook Putin a little bit. And uh, I think it was incredibly smart. And anybody who said that this wasn't planned all along uh, knew. And I give Biden great, great credit for that. But I'm not worried about talking heads or even defense secretaries going on television and tipping off the other side. Doesn't happen. So you know how much money was spent in just in this century? On the service academies, MIT, Berkeley, and Carnegie Mellon, Princeton, you know, how what the market cap of these tech companies are, how much we've put in the military. I got news for you, dude. Go out there and beat their ass. Right? They, they are, again, a country with a trillion and a half dollar GDP. And I want, I want, the, the highly funded, highly regarded, all right, people who, who've been highly educated to beat the living crap out of these people. That's my view. And I expect us to win this and win it decisively. I'm with you. Mike in Indianapolis, Indiana. James, this is right down your alley. Democrats get excited about shiny candidates in impossible races and poor in millions. But many Democrats in red areas have lamented there is no investment in local Democratic parties. How do Democratic donors strike what, he, what I think Mike says is a very important balance of supporting candidates in every race, but also prioritizing cash for winnable seats? You know, there's a group, and I'm, I'm so freaking embarrassed, I can't tell you that, that, that tries to do that. And it's called Blue Something or Another. And, and some oh, list, yeah, I'm all right, we, we, yeah. we got we to gotta find out what that is. Oh. And, and I'm totally do, you know, a pretty good job at allocating resources. And, you know, but individual donors that sit down, sometimes you, you write a $25 check, you write a $25,000 check. You know, most people, they... they buy a stock or they make an investment or they buy a house, they, they, they do a little research. Well, you've, you've got to do this on different races. 
and, you know, find out where something is really important, really critical, where your donation can make a real difference. And you, you got to invest not just your money in our democracy, but you got to invest your time and your mind in it. It yep. requires that of you. It, it does not require me or you telling people what to do. They have to make their decisions. We will come up with the name of that for next week's show. It's yeah, we got to come right. up with it. I'll ask, will, I'll, I'll I, ask about the name of this group. I want to promise I'm my, told by people it's, it's really actually pretty good. We're going to do it for next week. Okay. Andy in Los Angeles, California, says, this is a good question, James. Uh, since it, they all are good questions, but I like this one. Uh, it seems that the primary organizing issue for the evangelical right has been abortion. What happens after the Supreme Court overturns Roe? What will they turn to organize and fundraise? Well, um, I'm, I, I hate, I'm very cynical about what the Supreme Court's going to do, Andy. I think they're not going to say we've overturned Roe, and I've gotten a lot of this from uh, the man we so miss and so cherish, Walter Dellinger. I think they're going to uphold the Mississippi law, which says, you know, no abortions after 15 weeks, which in many ways does... Uh, uh, it doesn't outlaw abortion, but it certainly uh, stifles it a great deal, particularly for poor women. Uh, and I think they're going to do it because I think the Republicans, some of the Republicans on that Republican court say, hey, this is good. We give the right to life people what they want, but we don't hurt our Republican Party. So if that happens, uh, I suspect the right to life people are still going to try to raise money off abortion. But I think it'll probably be less, uh, less of a passionate issue for them. James? Well, let me start with... The response from the pro-choice feminist groups, if it, history is any judge, is going to be not worth a shit. Yeah. Right? And, and we're always told, boy, if they do that, when they did the Texas law, they're coming out of the woodwork. Right? But I'm sorry. You have not been effective. You have 70% of the people that agree with you, and we're getting the crap beat out of this, and we don't want to question the effectiveness of what people are sending money to. Mm -hmm. right? I'm just, I, 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 age and, and too much drinking a day requires me to be blunt. And I, I am not convinced, I, I, you know, of course I defer to Walter, but I, I think as Walter got further into this, he's maybe, these, these, they, they may do it. They may do it. And I think when, it, when they're in that cloakroom and Alito and Thomas and, 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 you know, Gorsuch say, what are you scared of? These people are impotent. All they do is like run around and, and, and scream and yell at each other. When has anybody ever gotten beat on this issue? And until Democrats show some political power here, they're not going to give a shit. And yeah. I'm just being blunt. I'm just being totally blunt. That's the way we like you, James. And your final question on your, on your blunt day, every day is a blunt day. Right, I know it's particularly blunt today because I'm drunk as shit. This is Larry from, Larry from Wairica. Not Eureka, Wairica, California. Where is that? Know I know where Eureka is. That's but with it, it's Y-R-E-K-A. So I'll look it up. I'll Google it. We will. But this is good. He's been a Democratic committeeman for the last 20 years in a rural red area. So he asked, besides John Tester, who or what organizations could I work with to try to fix Democrats' problems with rural folks? If we can't beat 
the antipathy. We can't, we can, if we can beat it, we can start winning again. So who should he go to besides Senator Tester? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I think Senator Tester is a really good start. Yep. And I think he's a, a, a really admirable man. And, and there are any, any number of groups, in, in, but the way that you do this is the Democrats have made a, a, a miscalculation. And maybe I, at some point I might have been part of this, that we thought, that, that the rising urban diverse population was going to carry today. And what we did is we're kind of even losing the rising diverse calculation. And, and the way that we do it is we talk about things that matter to people. What, look, the, the, the taxing, you, you know what rural America, if they, tax, if they had an income tax on people and made under $30,000 a year, you know what that would do to rural America? Do you know what Dollar General does to rural America? Do you know of all, you ever thought of this, of all of the people that were on that mall on January the 6th, all fat and full of Viagra, how many of them you think paid for an abortion? A, a lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you that. They have all of that crap going on in rural America. And what in Senator Tesla's right, you know, they're not they're not friends. Having an income tax on low income, you're not helping rural America. All right. Attacking women's health, you're not helping rural America at all. And you know, if they go and the squad wants to do a rebuttal to Biden's thing, so bullshit. Mm-hmm. Hit them where, it, where, where you know. Hit them where, they, where it hurts them. Go up to them and kick them right in the goddamn groin and say, "This is what you're doing to rural America." So culturally, I see this, and I like William Galston. I like Elaine Carmack. I like that piece. It's always well. What dominates economic and cultural issues? Oh fuck that! Yeah. I can be for women's health, and I can be for a minimum wage. Yep. I can be for robust public safety and, and, and I can be for expanded health care. We've got to get out of this like dichotomy of what, what dominates. They're not mutually exclusive. They are not. Okay. We're already well into 2022, and that means it's time to shake things up. And whether it's by switching up on your workout routine, going someplace new, or taking on another challenge this year, the best way to do it is with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you because no matter how much you shake things up, literally, no matter how much you shake around, you know they won't fall out of your ears. And they're everyday earbuds. They look, feel, and sound better than ever. They even have an awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings. So you can take Raycons with you wherever you go. And with optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable, plus they will not budge. Trust us. I'm going to take my first train ride in two years uh, tomorrow, James, and I'm going to be with my Raycons. They're perfect for staying in during your runs too, James, aren't they? Yeah, it, it, I, you know, I've used them and they actually stay in your ears. I get a lot of these earbuds and, and they, they fall out. And 
you know, and I get my, my daughters to, to kind of set up the technology. It's actually very easy. They get frustrated with me that I, I don't have it. But, but boy, when this product is up and running, it's a hell of a product. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, Ray, and you know, Raycons offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. They're priced just right. You get quality audio for half the price of other premium auto brands. It's no wonder Raycon Everyday Earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. That's 48,000. Wait, wait, right now. 32, 32 hours? 30, you got it. 32 hours. 32 hours. God damn. I, Jesus. Well, you may have to stay up all night then, James. Yeah, I may have to. Right now, Politics War Room listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash warroom. That's buyraycon.com slash warroom to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, now for the outrage of the week. And I'm sorry, loony Texas politicians are a gift that just keeps coming. Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson said the United States should be sanctioning not Russia, but the Canadian government for clearing out those rogue truckers. Our, Our enemy, our problem, James, is not Vladimir Putin. It's Justin Trudeau. Now... Jackson may have been in his cups when he made that inane comment. He was the White House physician before winning the congressional seat. And an inspector general's report, after he was unsuccessfully nominated by Trump to be Veterans Administration secretary, found that he was a managerial tyrant and on at least several presidential trips while tending to the president, if anything happened, he was a very heavy drinker. At least Dr. Jackson now is in a place where he can't do much harm. Congress and stupid comments are the norm. So this is such a target-rich environment. You know, you have to do triage. There was a story in the Washington Post about Dollar General, which is part of Dollar Tree. They have, I don't know, 3,000 stores around the country. And basically, they exist on food stamps. And being from all the country I am, they're they're ubiquitous. I think that's the word I'm looking for. And they had a warehouse in Arkansas. And somebody tipped off, I think it was the FDA. And they had, I don't know how many rodents, and they had rodent fecus. They had everything. And this is... Yeah, I'll I'll come in there and get a Slim Jim and a bag of peanuts and a, you know, Coke Zero every now and then, maybe a lottery ticket if they have one. But understand, there are people that exist off of this. And, and of course, the vultures run out, small entrepreneurs in, in rural and small town and medium town America, and no one cares. I mean, if you go to the Shenandoah Valley, you go to South Mississippi, or you go to South Louisiana, you cannot imagine. Go on a website and see how, how many of these stores they have. And this is just a facet of American life that, and understand this, that, that people don't get. But, but this is like really outrageous. And of course, it, understand this. It goes nowhere. 
But I, I, I hope everyone of our listeners go online and, and I think Dollar Tree, I think Sonny Purdue was CEO at one time, every corporate shady person in the world is into this. And of course, they, they you know, don't pay the employees crap. And we always hear about some big person in, in, in entertainment or journalism that has a, a hashtag Me Too issue. You imagine what it's like in the stock room at the Dollar General store in, you know, eastern Arkansas. Give me a break. And, and we need to pay more attention. This, this is an incredible story. I congratulate the folks for writing this. I, I, I criticize them heavily for not following up. Well, they may, and uh, it is, I'll tell you what else it's a testament to, not just the post, you know, regulation. You know, it's really easy to demagogue against regulation, but when you don't have vigilant regulation, uh, you know, you have rats in stores and foods, and that's just a simple... Uh, You have to read the story. It's so... I can't convey how bad it is. It really is. Please read the story. It it, it makes you sick. Yep. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist, Smith AI, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.